Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent. And down the line, we have Shahrazad Danyeshku, our Paris Correspondent. In this week's podcast, we'll take a look at Societe Generale's plans to boost profits in Russia and Romania by the end of next year. We'll hear about Standard Chartered signing of a $340 million settlement to resolve allegations it violated US sanctions on Iran. And finally, we'll look at what the future holds for the city, that is the City of London, as the strict enforcement of new EU regulation begins to push debt deals away from London. First, though, SOCGEN and this news that Russia and Romania are going to be the new hotspots for growth. Shari, thanks for joining us. This came out of an interview that you did the other day with the chief executive of SOCGEN. What did Frederic Udea tell you exactly about the Eastern European plans? Yes, that's right. I went and saw Frederic Udea in uh, in La Défense, the business district in in Paris, and basically Société Générale, like a, a lot of banks, is is beginning to look towards the end of the crisis and and the shape that the bank is going to take after that. And the two areas that the bank has talked about most in the past have been its growth engines of international retail banking, as well as its investment bank. But the problem with international retail banking, it's quite big in um, in emerging markets, especially in Eastern Europe and Russia, is that the profitability has been really very low. And in fact, in the first half of this year, international retail banking made a loss, partly because of provisions in Russia and in Greece as well. Romania, of course, has been a difficult market, hasn't it, for quite some time? Romania has been a difficult market. It's a, it, there are political problems there and the economy uh, has been doing badly. Uh, and there the, the, the problem is, is risk, the risk of doing business, the risk of bad loans. And what Frederick Udea said was that basically he expected the cost of risk to remain high most of next year, but then to start improving and that then we, he would see the contribution of Romania improving. But with Russia, it's a slightly different situation because their SOCGEN is, is up against some big publicly owned Russian banks. And so it's, there's a sort of competitivity issue there. And there it's a question really of um, trying to, to expand the corporate loan book. But again, he's hoping that by the end of next year, he'll be able to say that we've really fixed this this model in Russia and in East Europe. It's an interesting change of tone, if you like, isn't it? Because whatever the problems might be in those regions, they are, I suppose, potential growth franchises for the bank. And to have to, to be starting to talk about that now, after a pretty rough year where all of the uh, investor focus and analyst focus had been on the bank's balance sheet, really, and how how many problems it had there in terms of re- meeting new capital ratios and deleveraging because of the lack of availability of dollars, for example, amid the uh, the nervousness about the eurozone. They've done quite a lot, though, to rebuild that balance sheet, haven't they? 
Yes, that's right. I mean, if we go back a, a year or so, Societe Generale was, was the worst performing French bank. I mean, it, its shares were being hammered in the market and there were fears that it might have to turn to shareholders for capital. I mean, now I think really a lot of those fears um, have dissipated and uh, it's managed to show by, by reducing the balance sheet by cutting about 13% of the workforce in the investment bank that it can generate earnings and uh, generate enough capital to meet the new regulatory targets. They're clearly not quite as far advanced in that rebuild as their local rival BNP Paribas, which is now among the best capitalised banks in the world under the new Basel III global standards, close to 9%. One analyst said to me the other day that Socgen is probably at least a year behind BNP, maybe 18 months behind in that rebuild. But as you say, by the end of next year, maybe they will have a, a growth story to tell as well as that uh, that rebuild. Yes, I think that's right, because BNP is, is already talking about its growth story. As you say, it's already hit its 9% target, whereas Socgen is talking about the end of 2013 to have the 9% target, 9 to 9.5. So that is really exactly a year behind BNP. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see uh, when investors buy into that equity story going forward. Shari, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. On to Standard Chartered, and a few weeks after the news broke of accusations against the bank that they had breached US sanctions on Iran, and their pleas at the time that they really hadn't done much wrong, more than kind of $14 million worth of clerical errors was what they said had gone wrong compared to $250 billion worth of breaches that US regulators had alleged. They have nonetheless finalised a $340 million fine. Brooke, you've been looking at this story. They agreed that amount a few weeks ago, shortly after this first broke, and they've just basically finalised that over the weekend. So in that sense, it's not surprising, but it is a huge fine to pay when they were pleading their innocence. It is. I think the problem that Senator Chartered had was in terms of what they think are actually suspect transactions, they may or may not be right. In terms of transactions that did not have the right coding and that they didn't do anything to fix, they were dead. And so they have ended up signing an agreement that acknowledges the $250 billion worth of transactions that were not properly coded and not properly handled. So they kind of technically breached standards, which I think they would say, or they have said, was what everyone was doing at the time, this kind of so-called wire stripping, so that the codes didn't show up as with an Iranian kind of tag on them basically. They're probably right that lots of banks were doing it. They also have some pretty lousy emails, which make it look like this was not a clerical error. This was a deliberate effort to avoid rules. And as part of the deal, they have agreed to an official monitor who will make sure that they're complying properly and basically be in-house for two years. This is a classic U.S. tactic. Pharmaceutical companies, oil companies, financial companies all end up having to agree to monitors who often sit in at board meetings. It can be very intrusive. Sometimes the monitors end up having quite a positive relationship with the company. But the fact that an overseas company agrees to one is always a sign that they're in a really weak position with their regulator. Now, I guess investors would be rather glad, despite the big bill, that this will have drawn a line under what could have been a a very dangerous situation because the US regulator technically had the power to withdraw their US banking license, which for an emerging markets bank might not sound serious until you realise that about $200 billion of business every day, I think, goes through the US jurisdiction. So clearly, (laughs) they would not want to lose their New York license. That said, it doesn't 
actually draw a line under it because this is an only a settlement with the the New York DFS, that single regulator. I think they still have to deal with the other regulators that were looking into this uh, in the States. That's correct. And in fact, what was interesting about this is the uh, New York Department of Financial Services, handed by Ben Lossky, had never before brought a case on its own. And so it was a bit of a shock that this had even happened. The good thing from Sander Chartered's point of view is the way he acted has so upset the Department of Justice and the SEC and the and the Treasury who normally handle these sorts of things, that they are also on their way to working out a deal with Sander Chartered and feel, I think, by all accounts, the last word is they're not going to hit them much harder. They're, they are much more inclined to get closer to the 14 million number. Yeah. And to do, there will be fa- more fines, but they're yes. not going to be the same magnitude. But maybe in tens of millions rather than hundreds of millions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't yet want to take bets on the exact size, no, but exactly. it's certainly nowhere near 340. Yeah, million. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we'll come back to that as that story ends. But I'd certainly investors looking at the share price, it's bounced back to, I think, three quarters of the losses that they made on that 20% fall on the day of the, the news breaking have, have been recovered. So um, investors slightly heartened by the turn of events. Let's move on to our final topic, which is an interesting one and maybe slightly counterintuitive given the debate in Europe about the Eurozone and so on. This is to do with bond funding and the future competitiveness of the City of London. Brooke, this is a story you were involved with writing over the weekend, but it seems to be that companies are looking to shift their debt issuance away from London to avoid a a strict interpretation of, of new European rules. Essentially, what this all dates back to is in July, they updated the European Prospectus Directive. The UK has interpreted to mean that more information should go into the base prospectus, which is what you issue early on and the regulators approve. You basically put a prospectus in for your entire year's worth of debt. And then when you actually issue in dribs and drabs when you need it, you you do a final prospectus. And there was a feeling among the European regulators that there had been some abuse of this process and that people had been putting too much information in the final prospectus, which is not overseen by regulators, and not enough in the base prospectus. So there was a new interpretation published. And the UK since then has been very strictly enforcing a particular part of it, which basically says you can get a waiver from having to publish lots and lots of financial information in the base if the regulator gives it to you. And the the UK says, no, the whole point of this is we're not going to grant waivers anymore. You're going to have to put the information in. Ireland, which claims it is also enforcing the directive to the letter of the law, apparently, unbeknownst to it, because we called them and asked them, thought it was enforcing very similarly to the UK. But it turns out that a bunch of companies have discovered that Ireland is a lot nicer about granting these waivers than others. And so Toyota has explicitly on the record moved their base prospectus to Ireland where they don't have to answer as many questions. And at least three or four other companies are also looking at doing this. The Irish were definitely shocked when we said that Toyota was doing this. So it's unclear to me how long this will last or whether it really was intentional. It's an interesting twist on the Eurozone crisis, isn't it? Do you think um, this could be the silver lining that regimes like Ireland have been looking for? Are we going to see Spain and Italy try to steal the city of London's business as well? It's interesting because the prospectus directive is a maximum harmonization directive, which means there shouldn't be regional variations. This is actually completely counterintuitive and should not be happening under the EU laws. So it may be that Brussels goes nuts and clamps down. But it does suggest that the worry in the city of London that 
if the UK is too tough on its regulation, that it will lose some of its historic advantages, that people will go elsewhere to escape tougher rules. This one is a weird one. So it's not clear whether it's the sign of things to come. But it, it, it does make real this sense in London that they are becoming less competitive because their regulators are too tough. And it tallies as well on kind of a softer side with yet another poll that showed that people were unhappy with living in the city, city of London and, uh, uh, oh, this and is wanted the, to move out. This is the twice annual Global Financial Centres Index, which was set up by the City of London, and London always wins. And once again, it won. But in a tally thing, they have added a new question saying, do you think your city will be more competitive in three years? And less than half of people in London said yes, compared with 73% of people in Europe. But of course, they're coming from a slightly different base where they're like basically falling off a cliff. True. But it, it does raise the question that fears about the future are high in London right now. Yeah, well, let's hope they're not uh, borne out by what happens over the next few months. That's all we have time for this week. Sadly, that's all that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Shari for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 